0: Well, it's interesting, uh, the new arrangement here at the front of, uh, front of chapel. I wonder if that's a safety measure. Um, one of my old lectures, when I was a student here, um, had a bit of a spittle issue, uh, uh, such that if you sat in the front couple of rows of lectures, uh, it was always a kind of a game of prediction uh, to try and work out uh, when the spittle would get to a, a level where gravity took over and, uh, and it launched and there was, there, there was kind of this, this game of future prediction going on and some people just didn't want to play at all and they always just sat in the back and others were braver and sat in the front and just chose to kind of duck away at the last minute. How good are you at predicting the future? <laughs> Do you know what's going to happen next? I mean, there's... Uh... <laughs> there... There's a lot of bad history in future predicting, isn't there? There's bad history in future predicting. Like the guy who invented the Cathay Ray tube, uh, he said this in 1926. He said, Theoretically, television may be feasible, but I consider it an impossibility, a development we should waste little time dreaming about. He invented it. I uh, thought it was no good. Or or the guy who was the chairman of the board of IBM in 1943 who boldly predicted that one day there may be a world market for about five computers. Bold future prediction. But even if you come down to a 50-50 chance, sometimes the experts don't do much better, do they? Uh, Like poor Dick Rowe in 1962, the CEO of Decca Records in the UK, who had to choose between two bands to sign that year. And so he signed a great band called the Tremolos. This is what he said about the other group. We don't think the Beatles will do any good in their market. Guitar groups are on their way out, Mr Epstein. (laughs) Well, how good are you at predicting the future? How much does the future and your understanding of the future weigh... On the decisions you make today and the way you live today. As we continue looking at James uh, today I want you to have your eye on the future and to understand why knowing the future radically affects what you choose to do today. Uh, last week as we looked at James 3 and 4 we saw that James presented us with two kinds of wisdom Uh, Earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Earthly wisdom which is characterised by jealousy, selfish desires which lead to conflicts between people, climbing over one another. The great water polo game of life. And on the other side, heavenly wisdom, characterised by humility before God and before others that leads us to look for peace instead of looking for our own advantage. And which wisdom we choose to live by affects every part of our lives and is an indication of where our hearts are of whether we are fostering a friendship, an abiding relationship with the world or with God. And as James goes on now, he begins to talk about the future and uh, we can see the effect that having either the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of God has on decisions we make here and now because of what we think the future holds. So read with me uh, James chapter 4, beginning at verse 13, and we'll go through to 512. James 4, 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while then vanishes... Instead, you ought to say if it is the Lord's will we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you've failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent ones Brothers and sisters, an example of patience in the face of suffering. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who've persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or earth, by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. Three things about the future I want to point out from this passage. Firstly, time and the future. Secondly, money and the future. And thirdly, patience and the future. So time and the future, I'm particularly thinking about uh, verses 13 to 17 of chapter 4. These verses are not saying that forward planning is evil. Uh, They're not saying that making money is evil. James' point is about the attitude that we do that with, the attitude that we plan with. The contrast in verse 15 is between the person who recognises their dependence on God's will and the person who boasts or brags about their own plans. Whose plans are we really relying on is the question. So we'd like to think that we're in control of our own time. That, and we make plans on the assumption that we control our own time, don't we? That we're in control. And yet, even if we just stop for a brief moment, we, we know that's not true, and if we've learnt nothing else over the last 12 months, surely we at least got this verse a little bit better. Of course it's not true that we're in charge. For all of our grand plans, there is very little about the future that we can really be sure about, is there? But we still make plans and speak about our plans as if somehow we're in control and we predict the future and we determine the times and this is what James is describing as a boasting that is evil. It refuses to acknowledge the truth that time and the future are in God's hands, not ours. God graciously gives us exactly the same amount of time each day as every other person in the room, doesn't he? He gives us that time. We have that time only because it's a gift from the hand of God, not because of anything that we've done or controlled. And we should not be boasting about our control over that. Uh, Nor in verse 7 claim that we don't have time to do the good things that we know we ought to do we've been given time but what do we do with it this is, this is not saying that there's going to be there's not going to be more good things to do than you have time to do it I think that's absolutely true and it's especially true of Christian ministry there are always more good things that you could be doing that's not his point his point is that in our boasting, in our arrogance, we choose to do other things other than the good that God has put before us. It's back to the heart of wisdom. Do we fill our time with our own selfish ambitions, with our own clamouring to look good before others, or do we fill our time in humility before God, spending the time that He has given us in ways that will honour Him and love others? If all of time is a gift of God's and God is in control, then as we make choices, we make choices in that light, not boasting about our control. If it's the Lord's will, we'll live and do this and that. So we we plan to do this and that. This and that's okay. If it's the Lord's will. The future's in God's hands. Well, that's Time in the future? What about money in the future? Uh, And turning into chapter five, and James takes aim at this issue. Do you see? Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look. The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. It's difficult to know exactly uh, who it is that James has in mind here. We... We saw last week that somehow in the the congregation of all of the bizarre and hurtful things, they're murdering one another. Um, uh, This is quite a church. uh, But is he he talking about the people in the church here? Not necessarily. You, You rich, it might be Christians, might not be Christians, but in either case, what they are doing is displaying the wisdom of the world writ large. They're living according to the wisdom of the world, according to selfish ambition and pride, rather than humility and it's producing all kinds of disastrous results. I find this a chilling little passage because however rich these people were, the truth is that I have a standard of living that they could not have even dreamed about. However rich they were, I am far wealthier, in fact. However luxurious their lifestyle was, they didn't have air conditioning and wall-to-wall carpet and a bedroom for extra, uh, every person in the house. And No, it's chilling, isn't it? And James warns these people who live in prosperity and luxury... That there is misery around the corner for them. And the problem's not the money in and of itself, just like the problem is not with making plans, the problem is with the attitude to money, the use of money. And I find this a chilling passage because I think I'm almost desensitized to my own sin in this area of life. For years, I've been very careful about what I let myself watch. On TV and movies, I'm careful uh, about uh, sexuality, I'm careful about language, I'm careful about violence, uh, I'm careful about all kinds of things. But I have to say, I am not careful, I'm not nearly as careful as I ought to be about watching how my viewing of things. Is affecting my attitude to money. You flick on the TV and before the news, every channel has a game show where people are gambling to get wealthy. And everything I look at, it seems, especially if I'm looking at sport, also contains ads for gambling. And every other show that I watch is presenting to me a picture of an idealised life that I inadvertently aspire to and think is normal and right and my right. And I wonder if you're conscious of how much that affects you and your expectations and your attitude to money. We talk so openly about all the things we must have, about our need for a better phone, a better computer, a better home, a better car, whatever it is. Our attitude to money is being fed and grown by the world's wisdom all the time and I think it slips under our radar. And James highlights in these verses three radical misuses of money that each bring with them terrible results. Um, Three images, pictures. The first is um, the the picture of hoarding wealth. Verses 3 and 4... There's uh, three common images of wealth used at the time. Wealth could be measured in crops, but crops rot. Wealth could be measured in fine linen and clothing, but the moths eat the linen and clothes. Uh, Wealth could be measured in silver and gold, but silver and gold corrode, right? Actually, no, silver and gold don't corrode. That's the point of the precious metals. No, they don't corrode. Um, uh, What does James mean by saying the silver and gold's corroded? Well, yes, it's got to do with impurities and time and the future. It's the problem that they are um, not just hoarding money, it's that they are hoarding money in the last days. It's they're hoarding money at this time. And the verdict is that in the last days, all their impure stores of money will be worthless, right? Well, no, that's not the worst thing. It's not that they'll be worthless... What does it say? It's much worse, isn't it? That corrosion will eat away at their silver and gold and at their flesh as well. The image is that the hoarding, storing up wealth in the last days, will lead to their destruction. I wonder how many of us in the room here today have plans to have less money next year than you have this year. Has anybody made that plan? It's so foreign to us. Why would you make that plan? What a ridiculous thing. Of course I want more money next year, right? Why, of course? To what end? See, we are so conditioned to see hoarding as good. Anything else seems abnormal. Now, there's nothing wrong with saving, but can I ask, what are you saving for? What do you hope your savings will be achieving for you? There are good things and there are evil things. With what wisdom are you thinking about your saving? Is it heavenly wisdom? Is it God-focused and humble? Or is it earthly, unspiritual, selfish wisdom? Or is it maybe that you've never asked the question? Do we recognise that we're living in the last days and that we can't take any of this with us when we go? And has that realisation had an impact on the way that we do our financial planning? Or are we still just trying to get together as much money as we can? So the first misuse of money is hoarding it. There's a second The second is uh, to act unjustly with money. Failing to pay your dues. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 4. Look, the wages you fail to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. In subsistence farming economies, like the one that James is referring to here, a worker who isn't paid on time doesn't get to eat on time. And the consequences of that are obviously life-threatening. It's a simple matter of justice that workers deserve to be paid. And in James' image, both the workers and the wages that the workers are owed cry out to God, I think for justice, and those cries are heard. Now, we don't live in a subsistence farming economy, but we do live in a global village. And brothers, we are wealthy and our wealth gives us power and I want to encourage you to use the power that your wealth has for good because the workers who are owed wages will cry out to a God who hears them. And so it's right that we think justly about the things we buy, the way we use our money. Worldly wisdom will tell you, get it for the cheapest price you can. That's the measure. A wisdom that is humble before God and before others and actually loves others will say that is not actually the end measure of all things at all. And the price that I pay for something maybe should not be determined just by what suits me best, but is there a matter of justice here? Do I think about, down the line, whether the people who have contributed to the cheap thing I am buying have actually been treated justly? Now, friends, obviously, it's absolutely exhausting to try and think about that uh, with every purchase you buy, and just doing the research will be paralysing, But try it once and see how you go. Try it with the next pair of shoes you buy. Try it with the next whatever you buy. And ask your friends who've already done the research and just piggyback off them. But think about the way that you use the power that your money gives you for justice and not just for your own convenience. I think that's what James is saying here. It's acting justly with the money that we're given. It's the third image James gives us here of the misuse of money. It is self-indulgence, luxury and self-indulgence. Denying yourself no pleasure, letting yourself go. It's living the dream, isn't it? Isn't it? Well, James has a very different take on luxury and self-indulgence. Verse 5, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourself in the day of slaughter, You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. You may not have been to a great uh, tribal uh, or rural feast anytime where there's been a fattened uh, animal slaughtered for you. Uh, if you ever get the chance, I thoroughly recommend it. And if you can eat on that first day before the extra protein gets added to the meat that's hung out all night, I'd recommend that as well. Um, but there's only one person who gets fat ahead of the feast. It's the one about to be slaughtered. Everyone else goes hungry ahead of the feast. And James's picture here is of those who live in luxury and self-indulgence have actually taken up a central position for the day of the feast that we're looking forward to. But it's not the central position they were looking for. They have fattened themselves on the day of slaughter. Things will not turn out well for this one. That's what it's like, he says, to live a life of luxury and self-indulgence in the last days. But unlike the calf, we have a choice. There's a matter of wisdom to be sorted out here. You see, self-indulgence is a choice, isn't it? It's a choice for the world's wisdom, to be a friend of the world instead of to be a friend of God's. It's a lifestyle choice that has implications. It has implications for, for us who choose to be the fattened calf, but it also has implications for others. For in order for us to indulge ourselves, we are pointedly not indulging others. We are not Caring for others, we are doing it at someone else's expense. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. There is more than enough food in the world to feed the world and yet one third of the world's population have some form of Malnutrition. How can we live with this kind of tension? I'm not saying you're going to be able to fix that today, but do you feel the weight of it? Does it change your attitude to your own self indulgence to be aware that in order for us to have much, it necessitates others having less? The Marxist solution to this problem of the rich exploiting the poor is, of course, to encourage the rich to rise up and revolt. The answer to the selfishness of the rich is to encourage the selfishness of the poor. Well, I think history has by now surely delivered its verdict on the Marxist solution and communism. Earthly wisdom doesn't work because the heart of the human problem has not been addressed in that. The problem is, in fact, the human heart. And given the chance, the poor... Learn very quickly about selfishness and corruption and exploitation as they take the reins of power the next generation up. Heavenly wisdom drives us to a really different solution. Instead of revolution, what is it? James 5:7? Be patient, then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. As you know, we count as blessed those who persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Be patient, he says. Be patient and stand firm. Patience will mean not grumbling in verse 9, but we will make our yes, yes, and our no, no. We'll speak the truth as the prophets did. If the prophets are an example of patience, it's patience but not passivity, is it? It's patience and standing firm. It's patience and truth-telling. And so we should stand firm and act rightly and cling to God and also speak the truth. And we do that knowing that the solution ultimately lies in the future and not in the here and now so we have to be patient in verse 7 until the Lord comes because that's when the solution is promised in the New Testament I'm told that 1 in 13 verses refer refer to the second coming of Jesus now I haven't done the maths Um, if someone wants to correct me about that that's okay I'd love to but it's, it seems about right, actually. It's actually way more common in the New Testament than it is in our speech to one another, references to the return of the Lord Jesus. I wonder if you've noticed in this passage the way that James' description of Jesus come, uh, comes progressively through the passage... Did you see that? It begins in verse 4, the cries of justice reach, the ears, uh, reach God's ears. In verse 7, the Lord is coming. In verse 8, the Lord's coming is near. In verse 9, the judge is at the door. And in verse 11, as we reflect on what the Lord finally brings about, we see that this judge is full of compassion and mercy and we get closer and closer And closer to the return of Jesus. And we, friends, should be thinking much more about that future. We should live now knowing that we're going to meet our Maker and our Judge. We should live now knowing that He is full of compassion and mercy. We won't always get it right, but God will, and God is merciful. I don't know if any of you have ever thought about swimming across the English Channel, but a couple of tips on the odd chance that maybe you will. Uh, the weather affects your success. So through all the people who swam across the English Channel, lots of studies have been done, and the weather impacts the success of people getting across the Channel, but it's not in the way that you'd necessarily think. It's not about the wind and whether the wind's kind of in your face or the other way. It's not even about the waves or the swell. The biggest impact that the weather has on whether somebody actually successfully swims across the channel is fog. It's can they see the other side? The swimmer who can see the other side will keep going. Knowing what's coming in the future is how you keep going now. It's the thing that makes the difference. Knowing that Our great God is full of compassion and mercy and that he is coming soon. Knowing that, keeping our eyes on that, is how we live rightly now. It's when we lose focus that we lose direction. I read about a mountaineer who was climbing the the Himalayas and he fell into a crevice uh, and he had to crawl for four days through the snow with a broken leg In order to get out and uh, I saw an interview with him and he said in the interview that um, uh, that if he had have known at the start that he was going to have to crawl for four days with a broken leg he would have just laid down but he didn't know that he was that far away and he didn't know that it was going to take that long and so he just crawled to the next ridge and then he got to that ridge and he thought, oh, it must be just over the next ridge. And he just took one kind of step at a time and for four days crawled through the snow with a broken leg. And I don't know what your life feels like right now. Uh, yeah, sure, it's not snowing, but uh, are you feeling things are pretty tough? Uh, maybe you're in one of, the, one of those times at life where it, it's just tough and you don't know how you're going to go on. And, and if you were thinking about well, all I've got to do is another 30 years of this. <laughs> you might not. But God calls us to be faithful with the next decision, in the next moment, because the coming of the Lord Jesus is in fact near. And if all that I've said now just seems so overwhelming and how am I going to get my time right, my money right, and how am I going to get my attitude to the future, how do I think about all of those things? Can I encourage you to to just think about one thing this week, one way in which your knowledge of the return of Jesus, meeting that great and yet merciful and compassionate God, would affect a decision you're going to make this week. Maybe it's about the way you spend your money. Maybe it's about what you're going to do with your time. Maybe it's to work on your selfish ambitions your making of plans independent of God. Maybe it's to work on your attitude to money and your habit of hoarding it or, or, or of using it for your own indulgence. Maybe there's one thing that you could take on this week. What is it that you could do that would better reflect godly wisdom? that would better reflect the fact that you know the one who is coming back, who is merciful and who is compassionate and who has given you and me the great gift of time this side of glory to honour him and serve others. Let's think of one way we could do that this week. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, so often our minds are just full of our own ideas, full of our own plans, full of our own wants and needs. And we pray that instead, you would fill our minds with the Lord Jesus. We pray that his return would loom large in our minds, at the front of our minds. We pray, Father, that we'd live in light of the return of Jesus. And we pray that our plans that the way we use our time, that the way we use our money, that the patience we show this side of glory would honour you and will build up your people. Father, we pray it for our good and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.